So if you guys will turn to Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 31, this is an encounter with Jesus here. So after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Levi was also known as Matthew. So the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, Matthew, this was the guy who wrote the first gospel, right? Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. With the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the health you need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the main thing today is if you want to reach, you want to bring people to Jesus, you throw a party. But so Levi, also knows Matthew, like I said, is sitting in there in his lostness, a tax collector's booth, little itty-bitty tax collector's booth. He's sitting there in his lostness, in his lost profession, cheating and stealing from people every day, and Jesus calls him to leave everything and follow him. And the Bible says that he left everything. Everybody say everything. Everything. He left everything. Everything. See, guys, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to leave everything. You can't bring your lostness with you when you're following Jesus. You can't bring your lost habits, your lost attitudes, your, your, your lost beliefs and what is right and wrong. You can't bring that. I, I want you to think of the tax collector booth as Levi's lostness, Okay? Uh, I wonder what Jesus would have done if he went up to him, said, follow me, and as he walks off, he turns around and sees Levi dragging his tax collector booth with him. Hey, Jesus, you know, hey, I want to follow you, but I also want to continue collecting taxes. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I want to bring all my stuff with me. Uh, Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I also want to continue in the lifestyle of a tax collector, you know, cheating and stealing from people. Because, you know, it's a pretty good gig. I'm, I'm doing pretty well in life. And Jesus would probably look at him and say, you have, don't have no idea what it means to follow me. So before we can go any further, what about us in here? Jesus issued you the same invitation. Follow me. Now, some of you in here have left everything and followed Jesus. You've, let, you've dropped it all. And, you've, and, you have follow, and you're following Jesus like he asked you to do. Good for you. Good, good for you. I'm, I'm happy for you. Now, and some of you in here on the opposite end have said, nah, I'm good. I, I prefer my little tax collector booth of a life. I, I, I prefer, um, you know, my, my lost little attitudes. I, I, I prefer um, my, my little purposeless life that's getting me nowhere. I prefer that. And then some of us have said, uh, okay, I'll follow you, but I got to bring my life with me. I want to follow you, but I don't want to change. I, I don't, I'm not into this newness. See, guys, there are three things you're dragging behind you. People in the third crowd, people in the first crowd, I'm, I'm happy for you. Awesome. People in the second crowd, I pray that God changes your heart by the end of this, this session, this sermon. And those of you that are, that are still trying to follow Jesus, but dragging your old tax collector booth with you, I'm saying there are three things you're dragging behind you. That'll stop you from following Jesus. The first, it's, not, it's not on the outline, but um, follow, the first one is unrepented sins. Unrepented sins that you're still planning on committing today and tomorrow. 
These are sins that you've made part of your lifestyle. Um, let's, let's lift up some of these things here. Uh, uh, sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend outside of marriage. You've given your girlfriend wife privileges or you've given your boyfriend husband privileges. Well, according to God, boyfriends don't get husband privileges and girlfriends don't get wife privileges. That's reserved for marriage. And you're still planning on doing that. You're still, that that's your tax collector booth. You're trying to follow Jesus, but you're dragging that along with you and it's weighing you down. Um, how, about, how about this? How about regularly using porn? It's, it's epidemic in our culture. You're, you're planning on doing that today. So it's not like you haven't repented. You're still going home and going to do that today. You're still planning on it. Um, how about ungodly talk or, or careless words or, or, or gossip or backstabbing? Uh, all these things, you have no plans on changing any of that. That's your tax collector booth. You're, you're trying to follow Jesus, but you're dragging along with you. Um, or you're just incredibly lazy, don't want to work. That's epidemic here, you all. Laziness is a sin. One of the seven deadly sins, sloth is one of the sins. Okay? It's, it's a sin. Uh, let's just go through the Ten Commandments. Let's see how we're doing. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, most of us already failed that. Okay? We got everything except Jesus at the th- on the throne of our life. No idols. We, we've made idols out of food. made idols out of Super Bowl stars. we made idols out of celebrities. we made idols out of our work, out of, our, out of money. we made idols out of sports. Whatever it is, you made an idol out of it. Uh, the third, uh, not misuse the name of the Lord. Uh-oh. Number four, uh, commandment number four, uh, on, on, on keep the Sabbath day holy. We're miserable failures at it. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother. There's some of you all, some of you grown adults need to repent of how you talk to your 70 and 80-year-old parents. Some teenagers in here that need to repent of how you talk to your parents right now. You're supposed to honor your father and your mother. Um, commandment six, you should not commit murder. Let's hope that's not happening in here, but there are people who murder people's careers, murder people's reputation, murder people, have anger. Jesus said there's no difference between murder and anger. Uh, commandment seven, adultery. Commandment eight, you should not steal. We're stealing time from our company, stealing time that we have possessions in our, in our garages that, that we borrowed five years ago and haven't returned it. Guys, that's stealing. Okay? Commandment nine, you should not bear false witness, you should not lie. How are we doing? Commandment 10, you should not covet. How are we doing? We have, we're dragging around this unconfessed, unrepented of sin, and it's a tax collector booth, and it's stopping us from following Jesus. The second thing you're, you're carrying around behind is unhealed past. Living in, in unforgiveness or past hurts or past trauma, there are people that you haven't seen in 10, 15 years that are still dictating your life because you haven't forgiven them. Pastors, past trauma, you're dragging that along. Jesus says, follow me, and you're trying, but this tax collector booth of your unhealed past is dragging you down, stopping you from falling. And the third is an unregenerated heart. Unregenerated just means uh, not made new. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And, and, and many of us are trying to follow Jesus without allowing him to make us new. Those are the three things that we're dragging around behind us, you guys. Well, three of these things are tax collector booths. When Jesus calls to follow him, he calls us to leave it behind. And I'm going to ask you in the name of Jesus today to leave all those behind today. It's okay you bring them into church. Don't leave with them. Leave them here. Let God deal with them, okay? Apparently, according to my grandparents, this is God's house. I don't know if he actually lives here, but leave them here. And when you walk out of here, don't take your tax collector booth with you. All right? So, but Levi... He's a smart guy. He leaves it all behind, and he follows. And at once, he engages in Jesus' mission. 
He engages in Jesus' mission, the church's mission, same as Jesus' mission, and he tells us what it is. It is to call the, the sinners to repentance. That's what he said. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. I'm not here to call righteous people to repentance, but sinners. And guys, if we as a church are not calling people to, to repentance, we're not doing the work of Jesus. Okay? Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this is the guy, Levi, who wrote this at the last part of his gospel said this, therefore go and, to, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew wrote that. He ended his gospel with that statement of Jesus because he believed it so powerfully. All right? So Levi, Jesus says, Call, follow me. Levi gets up, leaves his tax collector booth because he's smart. Doesn't drag it along with him. And follows Jesus, and immediately, what does he do? Does he go to seminary? No. Does he take a class? No. You know, he doesn't do that at all. Immediately, he realizes that he has just been saved from his lostness. He's been rescued from the tax collector booth. And he realizes that all of his friends, all of his buddies, are still sitting there in their lostness. And he's like, hey, I got I to gotta, I gotta get these people to Jesus. So you know what he does? He throws a party. He throws a party. He's wealthy. He's got a big house. Wealth that he's stolen from other people in his lostness. And he invites all his buddies to a party with Jesus as a guest of honor. And they all get to meet him. Now, I'm sure that him leaving the tax collector booth was the talk of the town. All his buddies were there, and, they, and, and people had, had, had to pass by him, and he'd stolen, he was a well-known guy. And all of a sudden, he's not there anymore. And the, uh, the, all his tax collector buddies, all his cheats and scoundrels, the prostitutes he hang out with, everything like this, they're like, well, what's, what's he going to do? And then all of a sudden, somebody tells him he's following a rabbi named Jesus, and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. He's doing that? And then all of a sudden, they get in the an invitation in the mail from the Israeli post office. It's a couple weeks late, you know. And it's an invitation to a Matthew party. And they're like, Matthew always throws the best parties. He must not be following this rabbi because, man, he just invited us to the big, biggest party of the year. And everybody's going to be there. So they show up expecting a night of revelry and drinking and carousing and everything like that. And there sitting at the head of the table is the Son of God. Okay. But instead of judging them, he walks up and he introduces himself. Hey, I'm Jesus. Hey, I'm Jesus. Hey, I'm Jesus. And he eats a meal with them. And they're like, we've never met anybody like this before. Would you say your name was? Jesus, I'm the son of God. Oh. And you're sitting here with us. You understand that in general, God doesn't come to our parties. And Jesus goes, well, I do. Because you matter to me. See, this is one of my disciples, Matthew, and he's your friends. And he understands he's been rescued from the fire. And he wants all of you guys to be rescued from the fire too. And he knows the only way you can do it is by meeting me. So here I am. It's a beautiful thing, you guys. It's brilliant. See, what Matthew understood was something that a lot of Christians don't understand, that people won't listen to a sermon if there's no relationship there first. You can preach the greatest sermon in the world, no one will listen if they don't know how much you care. Okay? Matthew lets him eat a meal with his Savior before they hear a word he says. And when people criticize Jesus for the company that he keeps... He says, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm here to call sinners to repentance. They need me. See, the problem with the church, you guys, and I'm a pastor. I love the church. Before I go into anything else, I, I, I believe in the church. So the best people I've met in my life have been in the church. I am 
fully engaged in the church's mission. I believe in it. I, I, I love the church. I think it's the greatest thing that ever has happened to, to, uh, to, to the earth is the church. I've been to India, I've been to Nepal, I've been to Dominican Republic, I've been to Mexico, I've been to Chile, I've been all, I've been all over this, this world, and I've seen churches, and I've met Christians who are the most wonderful people I've ever met in my life. Engaged fully in the mission of God is incredible. I have to say that before I say this. The problem, though, that the church isn't calling sinners to repentance. At least many of our churches aren't. Instead of calling people away from their tax collector booths, they're affirming them in it. Walk up to a guy who's living a lifestyle, cheating and stealing, robbing people against the will of God for his life, and instead of calling him to follow, we say, hey, cool tax collector booth, bro. It's all good. Yay, you go, man. You don't need to change. You don't need to follow Jesus. We here, we're here to affirm you in your lostness. Imagine a doctor whose patient's having chest pains, pain in the left arm, shortens of breath, and the doctor gives him a fist bump and a round of applause. Not much of a doctor, huh? Imagine Jesus seeing people living complete rebellion to God and him being cool with it. Not much of a savior, huh? Well, this is Jesus' mission. It must be our mission, too, calling sinners to repentance and life. So this is how the church can reach the lots. This is how we can be faithful to Scripture. This is it. Number one, the church has to have its own house in order. If you have any been around me or this church for any length of time, you know that we emphasize getting our own lives in order first, our own walk with Christ right. Before we can say anything else, we have to get our own hearts, our own walk with Christ right. Then we get our own marriages. If you're married, get, get your marriage right. And then get your parenting right. Then let's get our church right before we say anything to the world. We have to have our own house in order first. There's nothing more frustrating than someone whose life is, is complete and utter chaos telling you what to do. We don't want to be that. The church must have its own house in order. Matthew 5, 13, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we're called to be salt and light. We have to be salt and light if we're going to engage in the mission of Jesus, which is to call people to repentance, to win the lost. Okay, Salt does three things. Interestingly enough, number one, it preserves. Salt was a preservative back then. They didn't have refrigeration, so they put salt on things to preserve them. Um, what does it preserve? Well, it preserves the gospel of Christ. The church has been entrusted with passing the gospel of Jesus Christ down from generation to generation. You guys know the reason why, if you're a believer in Christ today, you know why you are a believer in Christ? It's not because you heard it from Jesus. No, you heard it from another Christian who had heard it from another Christian who had heard it from another Christian who had heard it from another Christian all the way back. To the, to the disciples, they've been faithful to it. So we're called to preserve that. We're also, and this, this is a big one, we're called to preserve the concepts of grace and forgiveness. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we are living in an increasingly graceless and unforgiving society. How many of you all um, are, let's say, you were 30 years old before 2008? Before 2008, you were in your 30s. How many of you, raise your hands. 
Okay, let's, 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 go, let's go back to 25. How many of you all were 25 or older in 2008? Okay, you guys have it made. The kids, the people who were not 25 before 2008, you know what they're facing right now? See, guys, us, over the, us people, I'm going to be 50 here soon, us Gen Xers and, and above and older millennials, we did all our stupid stuff before social media. Okay, nobody had one of these things. Okay, you, you, it, 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 there was no camera anywhere. And so we did all of our stupid, rebellious stuff before social media. You know what kids nowadays are dealing with? They're dealing with stuff. There are people that are in their 30s now that are losing jobs because of what happened in 2008, 2009 that was posted. People don't understand that you're stupid when you're kids. No, they're still holding you accountable for what you did as a teenager now that you're in your 30s or 40s. That is the kind of society we are in right now because we have lost the concepts of grace and forgiveness. We are, we, it, it is amazing how few people apologize anymore because they know their apology won't be accepted. It's incredible. We have lost in our society the concepts of grace and forgiveness, and the church has to preserve that and preach that. Because I don't know about you all, but I don't want to be judged by my worst moments. That we are in a society that does exactly that. We also call preserve, call, call preserve the concepts of liberty and freedom our country is founded upon. If the church isn't preserving those things, who is? We're seeing more and more and more encroachment on the things our, our country was founded on. And the church is called to preserve the concepts of liberty and freedom that God has given to every person as enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. And we're called to preserve God's definition of marriage. Not, not go with, with, with whatever the world is telling us. We're called to preserve, preserve the definition of marriage between one man and one woman for life. That's God's definition of marriage. We're called to preserve the concept that God created male and female and no other genders. In the Bible, it said he created them male and female. That's what the Bible says. We're called to preserve that to a culture that's completely lost its mind. We're called to preserve the biblical protection of children. Jesus said very clearly, if anyone causes a little one to sin, it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. And we've lost that in our society as well. We're called to preserve that because there are powerful forces trying to change and or destroy these things in our nation right now. And the church is not immune to it. Um, I grew up in the Methodist church. I'm a, I'm, I, I, that's, that I've, I was actually uh, a Methodist for the first 25 years of my life. Right? 25, 26 years of my life. 24, 25 or so. I went to a Methodist church. My parents went to the Methodist church. My grandparents went to the Methodist church. Matter of fact, the first question my great-grandmother asked my dad when he proposed to my mom is, is she a Methodist? Seriously, it's true. She was hardcore, all right? And, uh, and it, it, the, the, the recent split in the United Methodist Church has, has, has bothered me. It's, it, it's, it's hurt because that's the denomination I grew up in. Um, I was on their website, and I found this. This is straight from their website. It's from the Inclusive Language Guide of the United Methodist Church. And it says not to use words like husband, wife, brother, and sister. It says this, and it's a highlighted thing. You guys can see the... the the highlighted part says this. Terminology such as husband and wife may sound inoffensive, but make, it makes assumptions about family or personal life that is not reality for many people. The words parent and child are good places to start. Carer is also a neutral yet understandable way to refer to the primary carer of the child. It may, it may not be the parent. So the church has, has basically adopted the terminology of the world 
where we don't use the terms husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, even though those are mentioned in the Bible. And I actually take offense to that because husband is a title I've earned. And father is a title I've earned. I work for it. And for the church to tell me not to use that term is offensive to me. We're called to preserve and not, not to engage with the lostness of our world. We're called to preserve that. The second thing that salt does, it flavors. It flavors. I don't know if you've ever eaten uh, something without salt. Like fries without salt, they're terrible. They're awful. Uh, and so uh, I, most people I've found in my life, now that I'm leaving my 40s here very soon, what I found this is this, is that most people can divide it into two categories, the bored and the boring. Really, how many people do you know that are just thrilled with life? I mean, they are living their best life. They are just engaged. They're joyful. They are full of love and passion. How many people do you know like that? Not many. Not many at all. But I emphasize that Jesus' mission, though, the church can meet the deepest human need that we all have, which is for purpose. A purposeless life is a boring and bored life, but a life lived on purpose is one full of excitement and passion and life. And that's what the church can offer. I was a psychology major, as a lot of you guys know, and, and, and my senior year in college, a great study came out. It was called the Hans Isink Study. And it was a study of therapy and, and, uh, and emotional health. Okay, and, and check this out. This was in 1995. Obviously, it hasn't changed much, though, as repeated things have confirmed this. It said, if you are emotionally messed up, if you are, are having trouble in life, okay, if you go to a psychoanalyst, they found, you have a 44% probability of being better at the end of a year. Okay, if you go to a psychotherapist, you have a 53% chance of being emotionally better at the end of a year. Um, if you go to a psychiatrist, you have a 61% chance of being better at the end of the year. And if you go to no one at all, says the study, you have a 73% chance of being better. Now, now think about that. Why is it that the people that are, that are supposed to keep us healthy seem to keep us sick? We, we all know people that have been in counseling uh, for 30 years at, at, at 50, 60 bucks an hour, and they never seem to get any better. Now, I'm not knocking therapists. I, I, I'm, not a good, I'm not a good therapist. You have any problem, don't come to me. I'm terrible, okay? I'm awful. I'm, I'm, I'm a coach. I'm like, go take a lap. You know, that, that's, my, that's, that's, that's the way I, I solve things, okay? That, I'm not saying that because I'm not a good counselor, good therapist. I'm just saying that, that these people, they're supposed to be getting us well, don't seem to be doing that. And why? Well, this is what I believe. I believe the social sciences tended to neglect the parts of the gospel that Jesus says will set us free. They always ask, what has happened to you in your past that has made you this way? As a, the gospel doesn't say what happened to your past. The gospel says, where are you going? See, I guess I, I was in youth ministry for nine years. I've been a pa in June, uh, June 2nd, I celebrate my 25th year in ministry. And I've seen tons and tons of people who are having all kinds of problems in life. You know, the only thing that ever helps them out is this. They get turned on to some great vision, some great purpose that they can dedicate their lives to. I've never seen a person get healthy by solving what happened to them in the past. I never have. What I have seen is the people that are just going under students that are just lost, that are barely making grades, that are, that are lazy, sitting around smoking pot, playing video games all the time, all of a sudden just 
uh, switch gets flipped because they get some great purpose for them to dedicate themselves to. And, the, and, and Jesus says, follow me, and I can give you purpose. See, the church can add flavor and excitement. Okay, church can call people not to muddle and mess their way through life. Joyless grabs of for happiness and, and, and trying to avoid life by, by laying around drunk or high, escaping life, consumed with self and pleasure and meaningless nonsense, but engaged with passion, the great thing that God has called us to do in this life. And the third thing that salt does, it creates thirst. Creates thirst. Uh, put enough salt on your fries and what happens? You get thirsty, right? All right? The church can reach the lost by living such purposeful, joyful lives that people are thirsty for what it has. That's what we want. You don't create thirst by being exactly like the world. You create thirst by standing apart, by being different, presenting a different vision for life. That's why, guys, I'm so fired up about the marriage ministry that we have at this church and, and the, the conferences I get to teach on marriage because we get to present an amazing vision for what, it ha what marriage can be if you do things God's way. It's incredible watching husbands and wives that thought it was over or thought they were just, you know, putting in their time, just kind of muddling and messing their way through marriage, get turned on to this great vision that God has for them. It's incredible. Your life should be so powerful, you all, that it creates a thirst in people for what you have. Your walk with Christ should be so powerful that they want the same Jesus you've got. I saw this news article the other day. In 2015, a county clerk named Kim Davis here in Kentucky. How many of y'all know who Kim Davis is? Remember that story, okay? Yeah, all right. Made a national news for not signing marriage certificates for same-sex couples, okay? That, after the Obergefell uh, uh, decision, she refused to do that. Well, she was sued by a same-sex couple there in, in, in the county, and she lost. And then she lost her bid in 2018 for county clerk. So, so she lost the bid. There was a three-way race. So Kim Davis was one of them, and then there was one of the guys that sued her, ran against her, and then another guy named Elwood, Elwood Cottle, all right? So Kim Davis lost, and Elwood Cottle won. They interviewed the guy, the third guy, the, the, the one who had sued Kim Davis, and this is what he said, and I've got, got it highlighted here. I'll read it to you. He said this. I just want him to lose, talking about Cottle. I would rather Kim Davis win. Remember, this is the guy that sued Kim Davis, that denied his marriage certificate, okay? I would rather Kim Davis win, Ermol said ahead of the election. At least Kim Davis has the integrity to stand for, up for what she believes in. Edward Cottle's a liar. So here's a guy who sues Kim Davis because she would not sign his marriage certificate. And he's saying... I wish she was the county clerk because at least she stands for something. When you stand for something, I don't care how unpopular it is, people respect it, church. And that is what creates a thirst, a thirst for what you've got. There's no thirst if they see you living exactly like them. Unfortunately, so many of us who call Jesus Lord and Savior aren't creating a thirst for Jesus and people around us. We stop being salt. And look far too much like the world around us for them to think anything different. We're also called to be light. Light, okay? There are three things that light does. Number one, it defeats darkness. The only way darkness defeats light is if the light quits shining. 
Did you guys know that? All right. Um, I want you guys to take out your cell phone. Take out your cell phone, and I want you to turn on your. Uh, I, want, I want you to turn on your uh, uh, flashlight. Now turn on your flashlight. If you have a cell phone, turn on your flashlight. Okay. Pretty cool. Okay. I see that. All right. All right. Now, um, if you would, it's. I mean, it's. It's. You can see them in here, but it's not really, it's, it's, it's pretty light room, not really shining all that much. Go ahead and cut the lights. How much brighter is the light? How much brighter is the light now? All right, now I want you to turn them off. Turn off your flashlight. Keep the lights off. All right, turn them off. Turn them back on. Now turn them off. Turn back on. All right, bring up the lights. See, this right here, guys, is what the church should look like every day. A bunch of lights in darkness. The only time darkness wins is when you stop being the light. So my question is, when your light was off, is that what you look like throughout the week? Or when your light was on, is that what you look like? See, the only way Satan wins is when this church stops being a light, stops preaching the message of Jesus, stops being that light on a hill. The darkest place I've ever been in my life has just been County Detention Center. I used to do prison ministry there before 2020 nuked it, before COVID nuked it. It was the darkest place in Jessamine County. It was full of bitterness. It was full of despair. It was full of unforgiveness. It was full of, of desolation. It was clothed in hopelessness. And despair, you name it. And I would go in there and I would just teach about being a father. That's all I would do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hand out any money. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do anything. I would just talk about being a father. And by the end of that time, those 12 weeks, the guys were like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. For two hours a week, we got something positive. The darker the darkness the greater the light will shine, you all. And as our culture grows dark, the church cannot put its light under a, uh, under a basket or turn it off. The only way Satan defeats Jesus is if, we, is if it stops shining. Satan cannot defeat Jesus. Satan and Jesus are not equal. Jesus is greater. The only way that Satan wins is when the church stops the message and darkness wins. The second thing that, uh, that, that light does, it reveals what you previously couldn't see. That's what light does. What a good church will do, it'll help you see what you couldn't see previously. One of my favorite stories from my childhood, um, I was told to wash the car. Dad had a really nice car, a nice red sports car. All right? And the only time I got to touch it was to wash it. He never let me drive it. Okay? He knew his youngest son well, way too well. And so I waited and, and procrastinated and everything until it was almost dark. And then I remembered I had to wash the car. And so I threw the soap together, threw the water, and I hosed it off, and I, and I was washing best I could. By the time uh, I was done, it was completely dark. And it looked pretty good. It looked pretty good. Well, the next morning was a Saturday. I was awakened by what I thought was an earthquake but it was my father yelling at the bottom of the stairs, David, get down here. And 
I go downstairs, and I saw the car in the sunlight. And what had looked really good in the dark looked terrible in the light. There were water spots. I had missed spots, um, streaks. It was awful. But guys, in the darkness, it looked okay. The, the lesson is a good church, when you walk in here, won't tell you that you're okay. Won't tell you, hey, you go. A good church will let you see the truth. It will shine light on things that you thought were, you were okay with in the darkness. You didn't see it. A good church, when exposing to Jesus, will help you see the things that you couldn't previously see. And when the church stops being that light, we start being okay with sin. We start being okay with rebellion against God. We stop being light, and the, and, and we, the people have no idea what they actually look like in the eyes of heaven. Okay? We can no longer do this. If the only reason you're at church is that you're allowed to sin, there's something wrong with your church, okay? If, if you're at a church and you say, well, if he starts preaching on that, I'm out of here, go ahead and leave because you're only there because you're allowed to sin, okay? You're the, you're the car that wants to stay in the dark because in the light, you'll see what you actually look like, Okay? The third thing it does, it shows you the path forward. Light gives you a vision when you're lost. I'm a hunter. I, 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 in, in deer season, I'm always going out to the stand or out to the blind in the dark. You have to get out there early before, before light. And I, there several times I don't know the property. And walking in darkness up and down into the woods and everything, if you don't have a light, you cannot see where you're going. You don't know the path forward. And when, all of a sudden you get in the, in the stand and you're sitting there and then light happens and you realize that, wow, I, I walked through that and I, 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 could, I can't believe what my surroundings were. I couldn't see them. And guys, a good church will give you a vision forward for life. See, that's the problem. So many, especially of our young people, 25 and younger, younger don't have a vision for life. They don't know where they're going. They don't know why they're here. They don't know what to do. A lot of our middle-aged people are that way too. Well, the church needs to show that way forward, okay? That's what light does. The church's greatest asset, though, we find out in the Matthew party. So once we're salt and light, once we don't compromise our message, the church's greatest asset is community. Christianity is far more often caught than is taught. The greatest tool we have to win the lost is our love for each other. Okay, that is the greatest tool, the greatest weapon that God has handed the church to win the lost, to reach people that are far away from Christ, is community, our love for each other. Um, you, you, you want to be salt and light? Christianity is far more often caught than taught. Uh, put together a community of people who truly loves each other, who are there for each other, who invite people to their homes, and you say, well, no one does that for me. Well, then you invite, Okay. Uh, who travel together, who meet regularly, that community, the love for one another will be so potent, will be such an amazing witness to the love of God that people will be coming to Christ in droves. The community. You ever wonder why the push to remove Christians from church is so strong? How many of y'all ever heard this? Oh, I can be a Christian without being part of a church. I don't need to, be, I don't need to go to church. I can, I can follow Jesus without a church. You guys seen that? You've heard that? Okay. I believe it's spiritual warfare. The statement, I can be a Christian without being part of a church, is almost a standard thought process now. 
I was told by someone I don't need to go to church. I can just do my own thing at home. I can follow Jesus better without going to church. And I said, wonderful. So you're following Jesus. And he goes, yep. I said, so there's one of you this weekend, but there'll be two of you next weekend because you're following Jesus and you go into all the world and make disciples, right? And I'm like, uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm telling you, you're following Jesus. So the next week there'll be four of you because you'll be making disciples. And then, then, then there'll be eight. Then there'll be 16. There'll be 32. There'll be 64. There'll be 128. Bro, you're planting a church. Yeah. If community is the most powerful tool the church has to win the lost, what would Satan's number one strategy do to stop it? He can't get us to stop believing in Jesus. He won't be able to do that. He doesn't have that much power. But he can isolate us from each other. He can remove Christians from churches so they aren't together, so there's no community. And then when he does that, he's, he's taken away the church's greatest tool to win the lost. This is why you should be in church every Sunday, okay? This is why you should be in a community group, a men's Bible study, or a marriage ministry, whatever. This is why. This is why. It may not be for you. You may be winning someone to Christ without even knowing it. They may see you laughing and hugging a friend. They may see you together, and they're like, I want some of that. And they may search out Jesus because they know that's what you've got. You may be winning people to Christ. You have no clue what you're doing. You just showed up for a Bible study. You just showed up for church. They may have seen you worshiping in here today. They may have seen you singing. They may have just seen you. I I, I wonder how many young men, how many 20-something, 19, 20-something young men are are wandering here, and they see all the older men, and they're like, wow, wow. The only, these are the only, only men I've ever seen in my life. My dad's gone. Uh, I've got teachers that are all female. Uh, but, hey, there's a Christian man. I wonder what they do. And they see you worship. And they see you here. They see you engage. And they follow your example. I wonder how many young women are in here. They're, 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 they're as lost as they can be. And they see women here. Instead of backstabbing and gossiping and everything like they see at, at places out in the world, they see you all live, loving each other and lifting each other up and praying for each other. And like, that's who I want to be. Okay, you guys, that's why you should be here every Sunday because somebody may need to see you and you may be the person that brings them to Christ without even knowing it. Okay, community. And that is why Satan has launched an entire assault on community, trying to keep Christians away from each other, isolated in their homes. I think that we saw what happened in 2020 when we got locked in our homes. How did everybody do? How did the church do? No, we need to be together. We need to be in church. We need to be in Bible study. We need to be in community group. Don't miss it because somebody there may need you. Okay? The church points to Jesus as the ultimate treasure. I saw this verse talking about a man named Barnabas, Acts eleven twenty four. The scriptures have this to say about him. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. You guys, that's what I want on my tombstone. That's what I, I want my life to be that verse. I want to be known as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And because I lived, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And I want to ask you to make that your mission statement. If you're a lady, flip it around. She was a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord because she lived. So we point to Jesus as the ultimate treasure, and we see the fruit of our labor. That is what the church must be. That's what Matthew was doing. That's what Levi was doing. And the church must be about Jesus' mission. 
And if you have never won someone to Christ, if you've never led someone to Christ, I'm going to ask you, what are you waiting for? 2024 is the year to do it. What would happen if every Christian led one person to Christ over the course of their lifetime? Not even the, the course of their lifetime. What would happen? What would the, what would the church look like? What would this world look like if, if there were twice the number of Christians in this world, in this nation, than there were last year? What, what would this world look like? It would look amazing. So people, we've been given the words of life. We've been called by Jesus to follow. So let's go follow. Let's do the mission that Jesus has called us to do. Every one of us knows someone who needs Christ. I want, to, I want to pray for them right now. And then I want you to go be salt and light. I want your life to be so powerful that they want what you got. I want your light to shine so bright that they're drawn to you, drawn to the Jesus living in you. That's what I want for this church. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for every person in here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for calling us to be salt and light. I want to thank you for giving us our purpose. I want to thank you for your church. Lord, I pray that Catalyst Christian Church in, in the middle of nothing Kentucky and, and nothing Nicholasville, uh, Lord, that we can be a potent force in this, in this community and in this world for bringing people to you. Lord, you have called the, the sinners to repentance. Let us do that as well with our salt and with our light. We love you, Lord. Bless every person here. And Holy Spirit, show them who needs you and let them go be salt and light. Lord, we love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.